and we are live from the empire of lies an oasis of free speech and open debate in the vast wasteland that is the biden administration i'm investigative journalist lee stranahan and this is the backstory well halfway through the week and joe biden's already grumping at reporters did you see that broad where joe biden was upset because and joe biden swore he had a 92 percent approval rating among democrats <laughs> no i missed that exact clip you're talking about i saw the other the other ones though well i've noticed and he's got a history of doing this he he occasionally goes after reporters he used to do this on the campaign trail remember he would occasionally verbally argue with reporters. Oh yeah, yeah, he gets real hostile too, and sometimes physical. Yes, he didn't get, he didn't do that today, but he gets real hostile. And uh, we'll talk about that, but we have two great guests today. First, in the first hour, straight out of Moscow, is our good friend Mark Sloboda, who makes everyone smarter about Russia and Ukraine. And there's a lot that I've been wanting to talk to Mark about. So, because there's a lot going on. That speech last week that Vladimir Putin made, we'll talk about that. That was a very important speech. Because Putin, you notice he doesn't come out and make a lot of speeches. But when he does, people should listen, right? Yeah, no, he doesn't. He doesn't really come out uh, public with a lot of public statements like that. But when he does, he does talk for a while, and he talks very concisely about what he what he wants to, to the public to understand. Whereas Joe Biden, Zelensky, for instance, in Ukraine, Zelensky is making it addresses every night, but he just says a bunch of garbage, right? And Biden occasionally grumps at reporters, but. The stuff he says, by the way, Biden's in Israel now. And he says that Israelis and Americans have a connection that is, and I'm quoting here, Rod, bone deep. Now, do you think, given what we know about Hunter Biden, Joe Biden should be using that phrase? Because I couldn't help but laugh. Right now, I don't. I don't think the president should be using uh, innuendos like that. And also, it's a kind of weird phrase. I've, I've never said. Do you know what I'm saying? That, that he's a good friend. He's we're bone deep with him. Pride Month is over, Joe. But uh, bone deep is what he said about Israel in the United States. And. So he's going to be going on to Saudi Arabia, and we'll talk to Mark about that. Then in the second hour, Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies, the anti-illegal immigration think tank. And we've got a lot of stories to talk about him, to talk with, forgive me, to talk with about him. Wait, there's a sentence I'm trying to say in there. We're going to be talking to him about many stories about immigration. Eventually that made sense, right, Rod? You got it right there, Lee. Okay. I knew I could do it. Thank you. 
and we'll be taking your calls, 202-521-1320. It's the backstory. Now, what Biden was upset about when talking to reporters is someone talked about how a lot of Democrats are calling for him to step aside so someone who could win runs for president. But Biden got very angry and he said, did you see that I have a 92% of Democrats would vote for me? 92%. Then I saw CNN did a poll and Jake Tapper was talking about this. And Jake Tapper, we'll talk about later, and his Bolton quote, his Bolton interview. And, uh, you know, Jake Tapper and John Bolton are both people I personally have conversed with. It's, it's weird, but true. A lot of times I look at the news and I go, I've talked to that dude or dudette or whatever their pronoun is. But anyway, did you see the CNN poll? 94% of young Democrats, and they didn't define that. Since we're talking about Biden, I'm 56. I could classify as a young Democrat, were I a Democrat. They didn't say, but 94% of the vague term young Democrats said they want to vote for someone other than Joe Biden. They hope he steps down and let someone else run. So, Rod, given the fact that 94% of young Democrats, whatever that is, that means that I'm skeptical that 92% of Democrats overall are enthusiastic Biden future voters. Are you skeptical, Rod? Um, Lee, no, uh, I'm definitely skeptical. You know, I look at this as that Joe Biden believes whatever he's told. So if he's told, hey, you got 81 million votes, I mean, he still still repeats that line, then, yeah, you know, I got 81 million votes. I'm the most popular president ever. So when somebody told him this 92%, and he'll he'll you know he'll he'll keep repeating that till the till the day he's dead. You know what I mean. So that's what his belief because someone told him that. Did you see the CNN clip? It's been going around uh, Twitter with Jake Tapper talking about those poll numbers and ninety four percent of young Democrats saying they want someone else. Yeah, I don't know how Jake Tapper holds it together. You know, sometimes you can see him cracking. You know, he tries to hold his laugh together. Um, so I don't know how he holds it together all these years through Russiagate, through now the war with Ukraine. You know, how do you even, you know, CNN says they're objective, but we all know they're the Democratic network. Well, he also was talking to a black news analyst, and I don't know who she is. She's a black woman. Did you see that? Yeah, I saw a clip of that. Yeah, I saw a clip of that online. Okay. She was the worst part because what she said is, well, that's not surprising because young voters, you know, they like to check their options out. No, Joe Biden is an embarrassment. He's a bad president and he's embarrassing. When he's not falling off his bike, he's, his policies are ineffective. Everyone knows Afghanistan and people, you're not telling them CNN, but people get the sense that things aren't going well in Ukraine. Do you think people really know Despite what the media says, and because the media even admits things are going badly in Ukraine, Russia's winning. And I'll say something else. Russia's not only winning, but Ukraine deserves to lose. Ukraine is a bad country. 
Ukraine is a bad fascist country. They've shut down all the political parties except the Nazi ones, the opposition parties. They left the Nazi parties up, uh, Sloboda, right sector, private sector, but they've shut down opposition political parties. So I'm saying not only is Ukraine losing the war, but Ukraine deserves to lose the war. Is that harsh of me, Rod? Uh, no, I would agree with that opinion a long time ago. You'd be way before this military operation started. So, you, you know, um, yeah, no, I agree with you on that, Lee. And uh, no, I uh, uh, I want to confirm what you were saying. You know, uh, sometimes I visit the the website. Uh, I, I know you probably heard of it, uh, World Star Hip Hop, just to see what's going on. You know, it's not necessarily nothing good usually on there, but uh, they had the uh, clip you were talking about with, uh, you know, Biggie's uh, 10 Crack Commandments playing with uh, the compilation of uh, Hunter Biden's uh, iCloud images and videos. So this stuff's all going around. And how, how can you can contain this? You know, if young people who have no idea, you know, don't follow anything in politics know that Hunter Biden's, you know, uh, the president's son's go has his a fetish for uh, uh, videotaping himself smoking crack with hookers. And in fact, I'll admit this. This is, you know, people, I do a lot of research, and sometimes I study serious websites that discuss foreign policy, and sometimes I do look up World Star Hip Hop. And the, uh, two nights ago, it's funny you should mention that, two nights ago, I was perusing World Star Hip Hop compilations. You know, they have like 10 videos from World Star Hip Hop. And they, you know, they have a lot of good school fights. World Star Hip Hop, you know, you know what I'm talking about, Rod? Girl fights and school fights. Yeah, yeah. The, the, girl, the girls are uh, very vicious. The young girls are very vicious. They will, they'll try to A-town stomp on your head, uh, on, on other, other girls' heads. It's real vicious. And what else they do is, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but I'll try. And I think you know what I'm talking about. A lot of these girls, the way they fight in these videos is basically, it's a windmill move. And their arms spin around as fast as they can. Have you noticed that part? The windmill that they do? Yeah, that's usually girls who haven't been trained or haven't been in fights. But uh, when you see a girl who knows how to fight, she throws straight punches. She does uh, damage. There's a few that do throw straight punches. But I see a lot of these fights, and usually it's not two people fighting. Usually others get involved. Have you noticed that? So there's like 10 people with their arms spinning around as fast as they can. And the camera phones aren't particularly great that they're using to video these. And so it's a blur. And they also the camera person doesn't hold still because often they're trying to throw down. But it's fun to watch those. And all I can think of is this is the greatest advertisement for homeschooling I can imagine. You know, to see what's going on in school and with these teenage girls. And I like it when the, the fight's on a bus, a school bus. Do you like those, Rod? Uh, you know, I'm kind of desensitized to this stuff, Lee. Uh, you know, I don't, you know, before, you know, when I was younger, 
you at least uh, get at least a few minutes when it be a one-on-one fight before people jump in or break it up or jump in at all. But now, like you said, it's usually all-out brawl and people getting uh, beat on. Right. Now, we have Mark Sabota with us from Moscow, and Mark is on the line, so let's take a short break, and we'll end the World Star Hip Hop discussion. But we're the only show on Sputnik that brings you serious geopolitical analysis, talk about crack horse, and World Star Hip Hop. This is the backstory. Backstory coming at you on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. on 105.5 FM and AM 1390. Uh, I'll just mention, by, by, by the way, we have great shows planned this week and more history lessons about Bastille Day, about the Moscow Revolution, the, the forgive me, the Russian Revolution. It's not Moscow. Actually, a lot of the action happened in what's now St. Petersburg, or what was Petrograd, the 1917 revolution. We'll be talking about that, and we'll have Caleb Malpin on Friday, apparently. Is that right, Rod? Correct. And Caleb will be talking history. And tomorrow, Ted Rawl talking French history, Bastille Day. And uh, you'll, you'll learn a lot of stuff if you're a regular listener. And... Do you know who, I'll say something, these commies, a lot of them know history, and woke people don't know history, but if you notice the commies, actual communists seem to know history, Rod? Yeah, they're very studious, they know what they're talking about, and like you said, yeah, the people who are woke who think they know what they're talking about have no idea. And that'll come up later when we talk about John Bolton's admin admission to Jake Tapper. A lot of people are stunned, I guess, by the fact that the United States has done coup d'etats. But it's not just communist history. They know a lot of hidden history that is not covered by the mainstream history teachers. I'll call them, not the media. But joining us now, straight out of Moscow, Moscow, Mark Sabota. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Lee, thanks for having me on. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on The Backstory. It's always an honor to have you, Mark, and it's also fun because I like talking to you. So how you doing, sir? I'm okay, and my commie wife, you know, she knows a lot of history and sci-fi, and uh, she's doing pretty well, too. Now, what sci-fi? What authors? Um, Is she uh, Asimov, Philip K. Dick? What kind of... Um, what's your favorite sci-fi, honey? No, books. Ray Bradbury, she said. Okay, yeah, Bradbury, that's classic. The Velt. Uh, uh, about Stalker. I like, Bradbury's, I like Bradbury's short stories. He's a very good short story writer. Hmm? He does a lot of stuff well, but his short fiction is very good. But who wrote uh, it? Strugatsky. What's that? Strugatsky. Uh, famous Soviet, yeah, the brother's uh, favorite, uh, famous Soviet science fiction writers. Definitely must read. Well, that's interesting. 
So were, were there a lot of Soviet science fiction writers? Oh, yeah. Soviet Union was crazy about sci-fi. And it seems like the early socialists were influenced by a lot of famous British uh, uh, – why do you think the early communists and socialists liked science fiction? Do you think there's a reason for that? Sure. They had a progressive image of the future of humanity. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Now, Mark, uh, we were talking – I haven't talked much about it. But there was this speech that Vladimir Putin gave, not speech. It was a meeting he had specifically, but he talked at it. So it was effectively a speech because he had a long statement. And that meeting, let's start with the basics on that. First off, tell us about where he gave this meeting, where he had the meeting, because wasn't the location something of historical significance? Um, I mean, I think you could say uh, it's a historical significance, uh, but um, I think far more important is uh, what he had to say. Yeah, we'll, we'll get that. But but I want to point out it was somewhat symbolic where you held the meeting, right? Yes. And it's part of uh, uh, as this special military operation has been carried out. Putin's done a number number of things. I I know that tie this in to history and broader Russian history, tying into Victory Day and so on. Have you you noticed that? What's what's what do you think is the strategy behind that? Is it connecting this event in Ukraine with important events that people in Russia know about? Well, I mean, of course, and there's. First of all, Russia is, uh, you know, a, a country that is extremely conscious of its history, and um, it is rather important in this particular conflict because the regime, the Putsch regime that seized power in Kiev in 2014, they have done their own historical revisionism. They they have sought an appeal to history for the the manufacturing of an anti-Russian Ukrainian nation, of which there isn't a whole lot of history to draw on there. So what they have been forced to draw on is the the West Ukrainian Banderite fascism or, or ultranationalism, uh, where uh, they were Nazi collaborators. We're talking about Stefan Mandera, the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, the Ukrainian and insurgent army. They continue to, to glorify. This is the founding fathers and heroes of the country, and it's actually illegal in the country to say otherwise. Um, and uh, that is why Russia has has made it a point to say that one of the goals of their intervention in Ukraine uh, is the denazification of the country. More specifically, it would it should probably be phrased the debanderization of the country, i.e., that you know this cult of um, of uh, Banderite fascists that, that worship these World War II era Nazi collaborators and Holocaust perpetrators, uh, you know, need to be driven from power because they are a cancer uh, on the country. Uh, they have a, uh, in particular, uh, what 
their uh, the reason why they're accepted uh, in the West is for the moment the primary objects of their hatred and violence are um, ethnic Russians, uh, Slovak East Ukrainians, and leftists. And as long as that is the principal object, then they're considered kosher Nazis uh, for the moment. But Russia does not forget them. Um, I would say it is a a fault of the Soviet Union that it did not do more to to eliminate uh, this you know strain of uh, ideology and and Galician nationalism. Uh, uh, I, I think it's more really Galician fascism than it is, uh, uh, you know, any specific idea of nationalism. Uh, but you know that is why this keeps coming up. Why history is resurgent in this conflict? When you've got uh, you know both political and military forces of the Kiev regime who are waving the red and black constantly of these West Ukrainian Banderite fascists, then that is a constant reminder that this is, you know, in many ways, a historical conflict that has not played itself all the way out yet. Now, do you think that what you uh, basically said was a mistake about allowing that band of Ukrainian Nazism to continue? Do you think that was part of the... Do you think the mistake was that the Soviet Union is part of the Soviet Union's when when it was formed, it was very respectful of different ethnicities. For instance, if there was an ethnic group, they let them keep their language and culture, right? That is a common criticism of of the Soviet Union that it did that it actually in many ways uh, reified nationalism. Uh, and tried to co-opt it uh, within its structures. And that's why the Soviet Union was still based on largely uh, ethno-historical republics, right? You know, Ukraine, um, uh, you know, the Baltics, uh, Georgia, so on, rather than, uh, you know, any other division. And that made it very easy when things started to fall apart at the center with the uh, very, very weak and Westernophile Gorbachev uh, administration, um, that made it easy for the country to break apart on those ethno-nationalist lines. And it, it, it is a common criticism of the Soviet Union in academic literature. But of course, the opposite of that would have been trying to assimilate them into an ethnic identity like Russian that is not theirs. So it's a it's a mixed mistake yeah. because it's a it's something very virtuous that the Soviet Union did actually in a lot my, of ways they didn't my wife is a perfect example she is from the Crimea and she was forced to to learn Ukrainian in school in the Soviet Union and she hated it her family regards themselves as Russian even though technically they're they have a Ukrainian surname. Their their personal identity is Russian, like many people in the Crimea. And she was forced to learn Ukrainian in school. And myself, I don't think it's such a bad thing that she was forced to learn Ukrainian in school, but she didn't much like it. Now, speaking of commies, at this meeting that, that Putin had, uh, the head of the Communist Party of Russia was there. And that's the 
big opposition party for Putin, right? That's the second largest political party, as I understand it. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. The the second largest party in the country, generally speaking, is uh, the the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, which is and so, in many ways a yeah, very so, different beast than the old, you know, Soviet Union was. And but I mean, it's a Opposition party in the same way that the, the Democrats and Republicans are opposition parties in the U.S., i.e. that they often disagree on lots of domestic issues and spending. But when it comes to foreign policy, they have a very common foreign policy view of the country. So that's something that's important to keep in mind. I mean, you can elect Republicans and, having, and Democrats and you're still going to get the same foreign policy, right? Having a head of the Communist Party there was a show of solidarity about the war, correct? Sure. Um, I mean, I, I think the communists were uh, one of the principal ones saying that the um, the Putin administration was slow and they should have reacted militarily back when the government of Ukraine was first overthrown in 2014. Uh, but they're 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 definitely showing their support there. In fact, I think all of the parliamentary uh, that you know the the parties in the Duma, the communists, uh, the liberal democratic party of of Russia, which isn't liberal democratic or isn't really a party and. Uh, now Zhirinovsky is dead, so I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen with that party. But uh, also a fair Russia, which is a social democratic party. You know, they 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 all support the the military intervention because it is you know such a crossing of Russia's red line national and strategic interests. What NATO was doing there, that you know it's it's it is hard to conceive of a Russian politician who would not react as Putin has done probably much earlier. Now, the, you said, it, and, and I, I agree with you, this was significant, a significant speech. It's really the first time publicly that I can remember where Putin discussed some of the military aspects of this. He had this St. Petersburg economic forum a few weeks ago, and that was a big speech where he discussed the economy. But he discussed military aspects and also was somewhat saying something new that people have thought he thought, but he hasn't said publicly before, which is Putin seems resigned to he's going to have to take this to the bitter end and that the West is going to fight to the last Ukrainian. And he he said that's a tragedy. But. What did you think the significance of this speech was, Mark? Yeah, I think a lot of it is, um, you know, first of all, it's common elements that he a lot of it is that he has said before. But he also pointed out, uh, uh, you know, that what we're seeing right now is the unipolar uh, world system of, of the U.S., uh, you know, the the rules-based order, as they like to call it, their rules, their order, or disorder, as, as the case may be. Um, he also, he, something is, is really being misinterpreted. Um, when he says, uh, he said, uh, we hear today that they want us, meaning the West, to be defeated on the battlefield. Well, what can I say? Let them try. We haven't even really started anything yet. And what he says there, what he's actually means is that 
the Russian Federation has only committed uh, somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of its regular professional military force uh, in Ukraine. Right. That that, you know, it, it, it is, you know, by far not the idea that that the Russian military is exhausted here. They haven't even called up the reserves in a major way yet. And Russia has some two million reservists, much less anything like a draft or something like that. Meanwhile, the Kiev regime has drafted every single male in the country between 16 and 60 years old. They're, they're forbidden from leaving the country. And when the Kiev regime is bragging about a million-man army, they mean a million civilians that have been forcibly constricted uh, into the military and with a gun shoved into their hands, and that's about it. Um, but he's, he's reminding that you know Russia can continue this. Uh, for a considerable period of time um, without any serious effects on its society at large. And the Western media likes to make fun of the fact that Russia calls this a special military operation. But part of what you're getting at, I think, is that Russia has conducted this like a special military operation and not like a war, right? They've not put in the troops or equipment or tactics that they would put in was a full-fledged war. Correct, Mark? Lee, Lee, when when the U.S. invaded and occupied Iraq, did they call it a war? No, of course not. When when they bombed Libya, did they call it a war? No. Even when Korea, they bombed even Korea. Serbia, yeah, they didn't. There's legal international reasons why no country calls what they're doing a war anymore. The U.S. doesn't call their, their wars wars. They call them interventions, right? That's what, what the, the, the phrase that is used ubiquitously in the media when they're talking about it. It's self-censorship in a way. Russia has their own particular language. They're not calling it an intervention. That's what I call it because it's what Westerners can understand and relate to because that's what their countries call it uh, when they do it. Um, but, uh, you know, that that's the reason why the fact that the Western press is making such a big deal out of it is is just such a ridiculous hypocrisy that they can't even remember what they called the last military invasion that they grandstanded and cheerleaded for when they were doing it. Now, what does Putin's talk, uh, what does it indicate to you as to where the, the conflict is going? Because the battle for Donbass is almost over, essentially. They've been taking... Uh, not, not, yeah, yeah, I mean, over in the sense that the writing is on the wall, but it could still last for another six months. Right. Yes. But d does this indicate to you, and this is a sad question, Mark, that you were right? Because Mark's been saying on this show for months that this is not going to stop at the Donbass because it no. can't. Essentially, did yes. Did Putin indicate to you that you were right? Yes, I I, I think so. I I think Putin very much m might have liked to have stopped, but when the West keeps shoveling arms uh, into the Kiev regime, when they're giving anti-ship missiles uh, to the Kiev regime to use uh, in the Black Sea, 
in order to protect the Black Sea fleet now, they pretty much have to take Odessa and and the uh, southwest coast, the remaining southwest coastline of of uh, uh, Ukraine. The same thing in the north when they're hitting uh, Russian cities. Uh, you know, they're not really hitting much aside from apartment buildings, and I think they've managed to hit one oil refinery in Belgorod, which is the closest Russian uh, city to Kharkov. You know, it's basically within artillery range, each side's there of the border. When they continue doing that, they're forcing, or, or, you know, I mean, such as an intervention is, they are forcing Putin to go further than the Donbass and then to take Kharkov. And if you take Odessa and Kharkov, then, well, then you pretty much have to take everything at least east of the Dnieper. And, you know, that's the way things, these things going. And I, I believe that people will remember that I said it right at the time that, well, they may say they're only going into the Donbass, but they will quickly find, you know, the, a, the usual type of mission creep where they have to go further. And that's exactly what has happened. And Putin, you know, he also said in that meeting, basically, if you want to fight, bring it on. You know, he he didn't phrase it exactly that way, but it was close, right, Mark? Yes, that's that's what he said. That's what that's that's basically what he was saying. And you know, you may think that that sounds like bravado and everything, but if there's one thing that has been proven so far, in that the type of battle that that must be fought on the plains of Eurasia. You know, uh, past the initial uh, first couple of weeks where uh, Russia tried a, a ill-conceived decapitation strike and it didn't work, you know, they reverted to their customary uh, style of warfare, right, which is very fires heavy, right, very big on mobile artillery and multiple launch rocket systems. And it has proven extremely effective for them. You know, grinding down slowly but surely uh, with minimal casualties to their own side, fortifications that the Kiev regime has built up over eight years, right? Concrete bunkers, you know, uh, built uh, in uh, interlocking with, with you know, these um, uh, uh, bunkers that the Soviet Union built, you know, to withstand nuclear bomb blasts, uh, you know, during the Cold War, which is, has been a big part of, of the Kiev regime's defense strategy, using those, which are essentially fortresses, and an army that was trained, equipped, uh, and funded by NATO. They've ground that down to basically nothing. Now, the West is trying to create a new Ukrainian army on the fly. It's not something that can actually be done, right? It's just prolonging the inevitable. And yes, some more Russians will die. Many more Ukrainian civilians, you know, conscripted will die. Some more Ukrainian civilians will die. But the Western arms manufacturers will, you know, be making money hand over fist over the deal. So, you know, it's kind of a win-win for them. Uh, in in that regard, and and also, you know, the, the more Ukrainians that uh, you know the uh, Russian military and the Allied Donbas forces are forced to kill, that it will make it that much harder for Russia to win back the hearts and minds of, say, you know, um, 
central Ukrainians or eastern Ukrainians, you know, who were on the borderline, you know, if they've got family that they lost in this conflict, whether they were conscripted or not, they're going to hate Russia then. I mean, that's that's pretty much. And I think that is part of the strategy, the long term strategy that the West is very cynically using here, that they want as many Ukrainians to die as possible. Because it will make it that much harder for Russia to win back the hearts and minds and to put back into force, you know, political representation of the east of the country uh, that would be friendly towards them. They're making that very, very difficult. Uh, And instead, you see that there's all this talk about holding referendums instead and basically Russia, uh, you know, doing uh, with much of East Ukraine exactly uh, what it did uh, with Crimea. I'm not sure if that's exactly the way it's going to play out yet, whether it, it will be this type of, of um, you know, referendums and absorption or whether it will at the end be some more some type of balkanization. But definitely the longer this goes on, Russia is going to see to it that Ukraine, as, as it existed as a state prior to 2014, it's not going to look like that going forward. It's going to be getting smaller and smaller and smaller as the West drags this out and makes it more painful for everyone involved. And that is how they will hope to, to, you know, um, uh, secure their own security, which was their big demand going into this, you know, uh, some type of joint security arrangement. Uh, But, uh, you know, their cries were deafened and they said, we will take our security into our own hands. And that's what they're doing. Um, It's only a pity that that Ukraine is the pawn and the proxy in all of this that is uh, taking uh, all of the destruction and the death. Uh, It's uh, it's a tragedy. And do you think part of what Putin was laying nay or no was that we've seen what your training and weapons can do and we're not that impressed? Sure. I mean, would you? I mean, I mean, I mean, not only in Ukraine. Right. But take a look at Iraq when the U.S. trained up at, at incredible expense, the Iraqi army that that turned and fled at the first contact with ISIS. Right. ISIS almost got to Baghdad and it took Iranian trained and led, um, uh, you know, a popular mobilization units uh, that actually served as the ground force for uh, the U.S. Air Force and retaking much of Iraq from ISIS. Take a look at Afghanistan, where they trained, you know, up to 300,000 strong military and police forces that collapsed at the, you know, the, 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 at the first gust of wind from the Taliban completely. Um, and, you know, I, I would say that, that, that what the Kiev regime has demonstrated so far has far more to do with, you know, uh, their own military history of the Soviet Union and the, uh, you know, the zealotry of the uh, Banderite fascist and nationalist forces, which formed pretty much the, the, the political commissars and the vanguard of their forces, then it has to do with any NATO training. And uh, while we're discussing training, there are well-publicized morale problems. And anyone who's following the Telegram channels of the Ukrainians can see a lot of this. 
But you can't if you're only following the Western media because it's not being reported in the Western media. But but is part of morale problem that there's a Western style of leading from behind where the generals in the West, America and Great Britain, the people who are commanding troops on the battlefield lead from behind. And that's seems cowardly to people in Ukraine or the, the Eastern style is for the commanders to be up front in a battle, correct? Okay, so I think that's true what you're saying is that Russia definitely has a, a, you know, military culture of the military uh, commanders, even the generals leading from the front lines, which is the very opposite of what is being calculated in the West. I don't think that that is so much directly the cause of the morale problems. First of all, it's political that that the people of East Ukraine have never supported this Maidan regime and Zelensky inheriting it in Kiev. Another problem, the big morale problem, is that they simply they have no means of fighting back. Uh, they have no training. There, there. A lot of them are civilians. Their territorial defense, right? That a gun was thrust into their hands. They were uh, drafted, right? They were forcibly conscripted, and they were told that they were only going to be defending their own local area, which they were then lied, and then they were shoved to fill in the gaps in the front line where the, you know, the professional military forces uh, that that the Kiev regime had have been ground down like by eighty percent. You know, is what we're hearing out of uh, the Kiev regime's own commanders that they've lost 80 percent, and then we're hearing commanders say, "I'm the fourth commander. I, I, you know, I was uh, an enlisted guy when this all began, and suddenly I'm the commander of my unit because we've had three other commanders die, and that's you know reported on in the Washington Post. Uh, you know, and so you don't think it's you know some type of Russian propaganda or the like." But they have no ammunition. They have no heavy weapons, no means of fighting back. Uh, they're outgunned in artillery 15 to 1. Uh, and four HIMARS is just not going to change uh, this thing. It's a, it's a joke. Uh, they don't have food. They don't have uh, even water. They have no communications. Their leaders, uh, you're right there that they, they, they're not leading from the front. They retreat at the first sign, and, and they're basically leaving these territorial defense battalions often to cover the retreat of more valuable units and just serve as cannon fodder. And that's why you continually see these videos uploaded by the Ukrainian, you know, Kiev regime forces themselves taping themselves saying we're not going to fight anymore because the conditions are thus are this bad. And we are, you know, we're not getting any help from Kiev and they've thrown us out here uh, to die with with no support, no weapons capable of fighting back. It's pointless. Um, and, you know, it's not being reported in the Western media. I actually did a YouTube video uh, specifically on this a couple of months ago already because I was seeing what you're seeing, all of these videos, right? And instead what they're trying to do is, is cherry pick one or two instances where they've seen – uh, you know, uh, 10 Russian troops or say, you know, something uh, desert in the middle of a pitched battle. And they're trying to to project it onto Russia, 
without acknowledging it. Meanwhile, they depict it as some type of sky-high morale for the Kiev regime forces, that they all want to fight to the death to protect their country and blah, blah, blah. And it's all complete nonsense. It's, it's a complete reversal what they're reporting from the actual situation. But they can get away with it because most Western people aren't checking up on Telegram channels and, and listening to Ukrainian troops speak in Ukrainian or Russian, because many of them speak Russian, uh, you know, what they're actually doing and why they're refusing to fight. And, and it's this Western media self-censorship. They, they don't want yeah. to report that. Now, Mark— uh, you mentioned the Million Man March Zelensky's talking about in Kherson, but his noun seems to be wrong because they've simultaneously run stories that they're going to start getting women involved and apparently conscripting women. How is If they conscript a lot of women fighters, how's that going to go over? Are Ukrainians going to applaud the fact that the ladies are getting involved and they have such an equal force? Or are they going to be bothered that their mothers and sisters are being conscripted to fight what is essentially as cannon fodder? All right. So actually, they've already actually conscripted lots of women, right, um, with very specific skill sets that are pretty broad. Librarians, you know, of course, anyone with, with um, uh, any type of medical experience or anything like this. Now, I don't think that a lot of women are being thrown into frontline combat in the trenches like that, but they are being used to fill all the administrative roles, all of the medical roles, which inevitably is also going to put some of them on the front line, particularly because of the type of artillery warfare this is, where a lot of them will get killed. But there is no political opposition in Kiev regime allowed. You have to understand that, right? The the far-right battalions, these Banderite fascists, and the Ukrainian intelligence service, the SBU, and those two are basically the same at this point. There's not a lot of distinction between the two of them. They regularly go around and they arrest anyone who even posts anything, uh, you know, even you know, questioning the Kiev regime on social media. There is no free media left in the country, right? First of all, all the media of eastern Ukraine was shut down months before the intervention even began, but they even shut down any media critical of the regime whatsoever. They have a unified information policy, exactly what is put out 24-7 by the Kiev regime. There is no political opposition allowed, right? Before the conflict, the leaders of the two biggest opposition parties were already charged with treason, right? Uh, but now, 15 opposition parties, basically every party that did not support the Maidan in the country has been banned. They've been banned, and their assets seized for the state. So the people of Ukraine, they do not, uh, they can't protest in the streets. They can't even say anything. They can't even post anything on social media because the, the you know, the the, the far right brown shirts in the SBU will be at their door within a few hours. So you know whether the women are sent to the front and people are upset about it, you know, until the regime is removed physically from their area, they just have to suffer it. Now, now, Mark, Joe Biden, that's the president of the United States, sadly. Joe Biden. Repeat the line. In the repeat the line. Joe Biden is in the End middle of, of. Repeat the line. What's that? End of quote. Repeat the line. Yeah. So 
uh, Joe Biden's over in Israel right now, but he's headed to Saudi Arabia. And his goal is to get Saudi Arabia to flood the market with oil to hurt Russia, correct? I mean, that is his pipe dream, but I mean, everyone already knows that's not going to happen. And uh, aside from, obviously, for instance, why would the Saudis do that? Because it would hurt them. Uh, why do you think that's because what's the U.S. is clearly trying to do is trying to remind Saudi Arabia. You saw Jake Sullivan say on a press conference that the Russians may be buying a bunch of drones from Iran and they know the Saudis hate Iran. And I think that's yeah. why he said that. Sure, sure. I I don't think the, the Saudis are that stupid. I mean, it, it, I, I don't think that Iran has 200 combat capable drones themselves, much less, you know, shipping uh, hundreds of combat drones to Russia. It's ludicrous. It is a obviously fake story, just like the fake stories at the beginning of the conflict about China uh, providing military support to Russia, uh, which pr also proved to be completely false. Uh, this is about political pressure and leverage, and he's trying to apply it to the Saudis. And he's not going to get what he wants from the Saudis. One, well, three reasons. One, because they're not that stupid. Two, because uh, the uh, Mohammed bin Salman hates Biden uh, because um, you know, he campaigned on uh, pulling the U.S. out of supporting the Saudi war in Yemen, the genocide there. Uh, and they haven't actually done it, but they did reduce it for a while. And Biden has also made statements, of course, about Mohammed bin Salman chopping up uh, or having Hasagi, this uh, uh, Saudi intelligence operative turned journalist, uh, chopped up in the Saudi embassy in Turkey a few years ago and so on. Anyway, uh, there's no love lost between Biden and Mohammed bin Salman, and he's the one who runs the country now. Uh, uh, so um, there is going to be no improvement of relations there. Third, even if they wanted to, even if the U.S. offered to invade Yemen themselves for Saudi Arabia, you know, and whatever, we've heard from the UAE, we've heard from OPEC, and the Saudis are going to tell them the same thing. There is no spare capacity. We simply cannot make up for the Russian or you, you know, you want to cut the Russian oil out of the global market. It can't happen. We cannot make up for it physically. We don't even have that capacity, even if we wanted to, which we don't. And we're not going to play your ice, your your silly little price cap game where you think you That's can dictate the price of oil to the world because they're going to say, hmm, you're doing this to Russia. Down the road, you're going to attempt to do the same thing to us at some point. Right. I mean, we, you know, we, we can see that writing, uh, you know, a mile away. Uh, we're, we're not going to play games with that because that's something that can be used against us because oil is the lifeblood of our economy too. And we don't want you playing hegemonic games, thinking that you can dictate the price of oil to oil producers. Now, Mark, it's late there in Moscow and thanks for staying on with us. Can you talk for a minute about the upcoming meeting with Putin and Iran and Turkey? What's going on with that meeting? 
Sure. I mean, just like the U.S. is meeting with Saudi Arabia, uh, Russia is meeting with with two of its own principal uh, economic partners. Russia has lots of geopolitical problems with Turkey, but they have a very tight economic, very good economic relationship. Um, And there's a number of things there, uh, both geopolitical and economic, to talk about with Turkey, what's still going on in Syria, um, you know, Turkey trying to edge into this conflict here in Ukraine and meddle in it continuously, uh, but, you know, also continued uh, energy cooperation. And with Iran, trade with Iran uh, and cooperation on on oil and gas with Iran and Russia is increasing. And Iran is, uh, all the the talk is that Iran will be formally brought into the Shanghai Cooperation Organization uh, this year. And I'm sure that's going to be a big part of their talks as well. And despite the fact that Russia... Uh, it's going to be a meeting with Iran and Turkey. What is Russia's, what is Putin's relationship with Saudi Arabia like? Um, he has a very pragmatic relationship, right? There's no love lost, right? I mean, the, uh, Putin is not naive. He knows that they are Wahhabist terror, terror spawning, you know, a dictatorship there allied with the U.S. But at the same time, he sees an opportunity. He's had a since the failed 2014 oil war that Saudi Arabia waged against Russia on behalf of the U.S. Since then, they've actually had a very good working relationship where Russia and Saudi decide the price of oil between themselves. And then that's given out to the rest of OPEC. He's going to see no reason to back out of that. And Russia, Putin will take every opportunity to exploit the the personal rift between Biden and Mohammed bin Saden for Russia's national interests. Putin simply sees it as another bastard that we'll do business with. Now, and pragmatic is a way to describe it because, of course, the Saudis are involved in Syria. And yes, they were. Russia They're not clue. involved in They have not been since 2006. 15. Saudi Arabia has been out of Syria, and that's one of the reasons why they've been able to work so well together. Great. Thanks for pointing that out, Mark. Great appearance by Mark Sloboda. You can get to bed. Thanks very much for staying up late with us. Mark Sloboda, when we come back, we'll talk about John Bolton telling the truth to Jake Tapper. That's coming up on The Backstory. backstory, an oasis of free speech and diversity of opinion and open debate in the vast wasteland that is the Biden administration. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. Well, Rod, another great appearance by Mark Slobora. I think people listening to the show learn more truth about what's going actually going on in Ukraine and Russia than they would get by watching mainstream media for a month. Do you agree, Rod? No, I, I definitely agree with that. Lee Mark always comes on and lets us know. He cuts right through the BS that the uh, mainstream media puts out there. Yes. And it, it, it's 
And it's important to know where this is going. Mark did predict where this was going months ago. Remember that? He said this is not going to end at Donbass. Yeah, no, he's been saying this is not going to be, this is not going to be over this year. He says by going for maybe, maybe another few years, possibly. And I'm just going to point out something. At the time, this is for any of the knuckleheads who try to pretend that Radio Sputnik is somehow directed by the Russian government. There's no, you know who does our show, Rod. It's you and I, right? You and I discuss who we want for guests and topics, and that's it. You've never gotten a call from Putin, right? No, I haven't gotten a call from Putin, not yet, Lee. And the, the reason I point this out is if we were towing the line, if we were carrying water for Moscow, Mark would have not, not have come on and said, this isn't going to end at Donbass. Mark would have said, the Russian line was, and I agree with him, I believe it's what Putin wanted, but you don't, the official Russian line at the beginning of the war was, we, we don't wanna go further. This is about Donbass. Remember that, Rod? Um, I, I kind of do lead. You know, there's a lot of statements all at, all at once uh, when that when that happened. I know we played the uh, the hour long uh, statement from Putin as well, so, but I kind of remember that. Well, because if you're starting military action that the world, the Western world, is going to demonize, you want to make it sound like it's the minimal thing possible. And I do believe. Putin didn't want to go beyond that. In an ideal world, Ukraine would have followed the Minsk Accords. That's the issue. That's the part of the war that's been going on for eight years now. Ukraine could have got out of this by being a decent country and following the frickin' Minsk Accords that they agreed to and that the West agreed to. Germany and France. Do you and, and I, I don't know how else to put it. This is the way Ukraine forces, by not following an agreement that they agreed to and that was negotiated by the West. Right, Rod? Yeah, Lee, uh, for, for sure. Um, you know, this is not something, like you said, we, with uh, Joe Laura yesterday, Robert Perry did talk about this and write about this. He was on Ukraine on fire. He was very adamant that this was going to lead to possibly to World War III. And unfortunately, he's not around anymore to talk about it. But so people have been talking about this for almost 10 years now, almost, you know, uh, we're going to get there soon to the 10 year anniversary. Yes. And, and, and following the Minsk Accords, again, this wasn't something that Russia forced. This was a Western negotiated settlement the Minsk Accords, and then forget Minsk. Minsk II is what they didn't follow. They didn't follow the first one, and then so it was renegotiated by the West. And Ukraine, you never hear anyone talk about Minsk. You never hear the Wall Street Journal or CNN or anybody mention that Ukraine didn't follow the Minsk Accords. That's what should have happened. So, great appearance by Mark Sobota. Appreciate him coming on. And it's midnight in Moscow, so he should get to bed. But it's nice that his coming wife was staying up with him. That's nice. His coming wife was up reading sci-fi with him. 
That sounds lovely, doesn't it, Rod? Sounds like a Netflix-style series. Yes, indeed. The Marks of Our Netflix series. Coming up this hour, Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies. And we have a variety of immigration stories and things the mainstream media are misreporting or not reporting on. And we're taking your calls. 202-521-1320. This is the backstory. Okay, so I I got the phone calls and Owl Killer and Tarif, uh, one second, I got to play this Bolton clip. You agree I got to play it, right, Rod? Because it's amazing. Yeah, I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't surprised by it, and I don't think you were too uh, about what he was saying. But you know, to the general public, it might be. Okay, so uh, the thing about this, I will give John Bolton props. I think his analysis of Donald Trump here is exactly right. I've said for a while, January sixth is a sham. It's a kangaroo court. But Bolton points out. He praises January 6th for pointing out some things. And I actually tend to agree with him. I've said before, I don't know what Trump was doing. Trump clearly encouraged people to go to the Capitol on January 6th, right? And I've said that I've been critical of it. You've heard me, Rod, right? I've criticized that on this very show, correct? Yeah, even even uh, the day before the you know the days leading up to and the day on the day of January sixth. So yeah. But what is a joke is to say this was an insurrection or a coup d'état. That was not it. And I'm going to give people a dose of reality. Even if Trump had explicitly called for a coup d'état, and even if the people had tried to do it. It would not have succeeded because even if they'd killed people, even if they'd strung up Mike Pence, if they had hung Mike Pence from his neck until dead, it would not have been a coup d'etat because what would have happened, it wouldn't have shut down the process. Do you agree with me that even if they had had killed people, it would not have been, they were going to certified Joe Biden one way or another, right? Uh, yeah, that's my belief as well, Lee. I think um, the what, I mean, what Donald Trump wanted and what other Republican voters or Trump voters wanted was, uh, you know, for a, uh, a protest from certain Republicans about the uh, votes in their states. But, I, you know, ultimately, like you said, Joe Biden still probably got certified anyway. And so part of the reason I wanted to play this is not just because John Bolton admits to planning coup d'etats, but but that wasn't a surprise to me. We know the U.S. has sponsored coup d'etats. That's not a surprise. And him admitting that is not a huge surprise. I thought the statements he makes about Trump here are correct. I think what his analysis of what Trump was up to, Trump was just up to playing for time. I think Trump was doing that. And his insulting view of Trump, that Trump is essentially a shallow and selfish person, is correct. And I talked about it yesterday with the Elon Musk thing. And I've said it many times. 
Donald Trump is a shallow person whose main interest is Donald Trump. And you can tell that because his business is buying buildings and naming them Trump. The Trump Tower, the Trump Hotel, everything's Trump. That tells you a lot about Donald Trump. So listen to John Bolton's analysis. I might not have phrased it in such an insulting way, but A, Bolton is critical of the media for saying, don't say this is a coup d'etat, because it's not. And he's completely right. This was not a coup d'etat or an insurrection, because it couldn't have possibly been. It would not have changed Biden from taking office. It was simply Trump flailing around. And that's why I was meeting with Sidney Powell and those knuckleheads. That's why I was hanging out with my pillow guy. Anybody, Trump is so shallow that if you seem to be on his side, he'll hang out with you, even if there's no free my pillow in it for him. So let's so listen to this with that in mind. I think John Bolton is right about Donald Trump. I might not phrase it exactly that way, but I might. So run the first clip. Not heed the advice and keep shopping around until you end up with this group of misfits with the, like Michael Flynn and Sidney Powell. Um, is he just not capable of, of hearing no? Well, when it comes to his personal advantage, the answer is he doesn't listen to anybody else. But I think this it's also important to understand, while nothing Donald Trump did after the election uh, in connection with uh, the lie about the election fraud, none of it is defensible. None of it is defensible. Uh, it's also a mistake, as some people have said, including on the committee, the commentators, that somehow this was a carefully planned coup d'etat aimed at the Constitution. That's not the way Donald Trump does things. It's rambling from one half-vast idea to another, one plan that falls through and another comes up. That, that's what he was doing. As I say, none of it defensible. But you have to understand the nature of what the problem of Donald Trump is. He's to use a Star Wars metaphor, a disturbance in the force. And it's not an attack on our democracy. It's Donald Trump looking out for Donald Trump. It's a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence. I don't know that I agree with you, to be, to be uh, fair, with all due respect. Uh, one doesn't have to be brilliant to attempt a coup. Uh, I disagree with that. As somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat, yeah. not here, but you know, other places, uh, it takes a lot of work. And that's not what he did. It was just stumbling around from one idea to another. Ultimately, he did unleash the rioters at the Capitol. As to that, there's no doubt but not to overthrow the Constitution, to buy more time to throw the matter back to the states to try and redo the issue. And if you don't believe that, you're going to overreact. And I think that's a real risk for the committee, which has done a lot of good work, mostly when the witnesses testify, not when the members are opining. Uh, it is invariably the case that when you go too far trying to prove your case, you undermine it. And I think you got to give credit to the intelligence of the American people to listen to the witnesses and let them come to the conclusion. And I think the uh, fellow who had actually gone into the Capitol who said today that he had blinders on and he was too loyal to one person, that is the central point. Yeah, no, it's, it's something. And it was, it, as uh, I think uh, Laura Coates said or somebody said earlier. 
The coup d'etat happened in 2016 when Hillary Clinton lost the presidency and the Democratic Party attempted to remove through impeachment. And the, the second one was all about Ukraine. Notice that, remember that in terms of the current war. Notice it was all about Ukraine. And the first one was a lot of Ukraine. That's what my journalism was about. Talking about, I've been talking about this for five, six years. Ukraine and the intelligence committee, community and the deep state were involved in a coup d'etat. That was a coup d'etat. And do you, Rod, do you agree with listening to it? Do you agree with what Bolton said about Trump? Um, yeah, I, I would agree with that, Lee. Um, and, and I would agree on the assessment of what Trump was trying to do. He was trying to buy time. And like I said, he was trying to get uh, Republican um, politicians to protest the, um, the election. And like you said, he was trying to buy time. Um, and also, I, you know, I wish he would have, you know, I don't like John Bone at all. I don't agree with a lot of stuff he does and has done. But I wish he would have added in there the uh, what makes what made Trump even worse was his uh, advisors like Jared and Ivanka. Right. And Bolton. And uh, but but when, when he's right, he's right. And he's right. And he knows John Donald Trump intimately because he worked for him. And that is the way Trump operates. Now, let's play the second clip and then we'll get to Owl Killer. So thanks for being patient. But let's play the follow up clip. Hit it. To anathematize the rest of the Republican Party. And that's unacceptable. I, I do want to ask a follow up. Um, when we were talking about what is capable, what you need to do to be able to plan a coup. And you, you cited your expertise having planned coups. I'm not going to get into the specifics, but uh, successful coups? Well, I wrote about Venezuela in, uh, in the book, and uh, it, it turned out not to be successful. Not that we had all that much to do with it, but I saw what it took for an opposition to try and overturn an illegally elected president, and they failed. The notion that Donald Trump was half as competent as the Venezuelan opposition is laughable. But I think there's another. I feel like you're this other stuff you're not telling me, though. I think I'm sure there is. Uh, I think there's another point here that, that came out in the testimony that's not been stressed enough. Uh, testimony, uh, uh, deposition testimony by, I think his name was Donnell Harvin. I, I may have taken that down wrong. The, the chief of uh, intelligence and homeland security for the District of Columbia government, who said we were watching Twitter after Trump's tweet calling for the demonstration on right. January the 6th. We saw all of these implications all of the concerns about the violence. I want to know where the rest of the government was, and I particularly want to know where members of Congress were. If this was so evident at the time, why there wasn't more security on the Hill long before the, the demonstrators ever turned up? No, it's a good question, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people who just lived here and had been paying attention were aware that there was a real potential for violence. Yeah, I, I wonder when the United States, through a successful coup, Ukraine, <coughs> excuse me, bad cough, <coughs> Ukraine, <coughs> obviously the neocons of which Bolton is one and which Dick Cheney is one. And you know who used to work for Dick Cheney? It's a woman. You, you know who that is, Rod? Um, it's not, no, I, I, gotta, I don't know this one, Lee. Victoria Nuland. People oh, wow, forget that. Victoria Nuland worked for Dick Cheney. That makes sense. Her husband's Robert Kagan 
was a famous quote unquote Republican neocon, and she's a Democrat neocon. But Ukraine is an obvious coup that was successful. And I've seen what went on there. And George Soros was involved and spent billions of dollars. And Bolton is right. And he doesn't name a specific example. And neither does Tapper, because that would give away the game. He can talk about Venezuela, but they overthrew a democratically elected government in Ukraine. The United States overthrew a democratically elected government in Ukraine. And that's what Jack Tapper was looking for there, the example. But he couldn't, and he's right. The idea that January 6th was, if he, it was not a planned coup or sedition. He's completely right about that. So 5-2-202-521-1320. Thanks for waiting. Go ahead, Al Killer. I think I even remember almost a word-for-word quote on your uh, Twitter when it was like Antifa, Proud Boys, and Oath Keepers. Um, I wonder who, what's the undercard? So that that whole January 6th thing was a, just a dumb move on uh, President Trump's part to begin with. Um, but clearly not not a not a coup d'état. You know the coup, the coup d'état. You want to talk coup d'état? Let's talk about the World Economic Forum coup d'état. That's a real bloodless coup where you basically bring up leaders throughout the ranks and put them in and have them and put them into governments. And Klaus Schwab's on record bragging about how more than fifty percent of countries like uh, Canada on um, their um, Cabinets are all members of the World Economic Forum. Um, going on to Bolton, uh, Bolton's, you know, I can't stand the guy, especially the mustache, but he is, he's smart in the sense that what he's doing now is he's trying to get in the good graces of Republicans that are, they're sane enough to know that the policies we're doing now are uh, don't work and that, it, and that are smart enough to know that outside of Liz Cheney wing, that clearly it wasn't a coup. So he just he just doing that to remain relevant so he can find his way into the next Republican uh, administration that is, if, you know, if Trump doesn't get reelected, he's trying to find his way in. So that's where he's trying to play the, comp, the uh, middle ground of, you know, obviously it wasn't a coup, but it wasn't a good thing either. So he, Bolton is actually um, projecting what, how Trump is all for Trump. Bolton is all for Bolton in the, in the same sense. Um, that that's where I see that going. But um, I I really think that the the real do you, do you know what you, the point you're making, Alco? Let me say, a lot of times, if you have someone who's a contract hitman for the mafia, they can look at things. I, you you don't you're not saying he's a good person, but he knows how the mafia works. And he can say, better than the average person, this looks like a mafia hit, or this does not. Does that make sense? Absolutely, definitely, 100%. And so, like an, you know... arsonist, and he knows arson when he sees it, and this was an arson. Right. Great great call, Al Kohler. I got to move on only because of time, but thanks for calling, and thanks for waiting. Tarif, 202-521-1320, on the... Backstory line. Go ahead. 
Um, thank y'all for taking my call. First, I say free you on signs. This is about AMLO and the um, Biden meeting uh, had met yesterday, and they discussed certain things. Uh, I looked at the four to five minute um, conversation they had, and basically, um, AMLO laid out, you know, his basically was letting Biden know what all Mexico is doing for the United States. I didn't know Mexico was giving seventy two percent of its petroleum to the United States, and um, and also. They're stopping the uh, refugees, excuse me, the migrants that's gone to the United States as well. Some of them are getting through. They, uh, AMLO, what he can do, if he really want to mess over the Biden administration, he can draw bricks. He can um, also get along from China to, to have a, a major infrastructure program to take place down there. What that's going to do, a lot of um, Hispanic workers that's working in the United States, especially Mex Mex Mexican. They can leave, go back to Mexico. They have then they have a lot of um, low level jobs opening, like in uh, what you call it, agriculture and other places. And that will be basically hurt the Republicans and the Democrats because you have a workforce going back to Mexico to make higher wages. Um, he have a lot of control, and I hope uh, hopefully he did. Hopefully he says something about Jordan Science that. Biden should free him from, let him go. Be supporting him. Hopefully, he, he brought that up. But when I heard saw that um thing when he was talking to Biden yesterday, he basically um is a lot of leverage Amlo have. He's something like to me, he's something like an Erdogan that's in America, and he's also intermediary between Venezuela and the uh, United States as well. And um, the Biden administration won't be able to cool him. Because they got a lot of leftists living in Mexico that will protect AMLO. So yeah, so hopefully, just hope and pray Julian signs be freed and United States. You know, AMLO. Well, Tarif, I'm glad you brought the, up AMLO, the head of Mexico, because we'll be talking to Andrew Arthur next, and we'll certainly be bringing up Biden's meeting with AMLO yesterday, because it's significant. But good, good point bringing that up. Anything else, Tarif? Um. Mike Papayo, um, he's, you know, by him last year, he threatened sources. Remember, he came out and threatened sources about um, who, who, who people had came out and whistleblowed on him, talking about he was the one who was trying to order the kidnapping or the killing of Julian Sines. He should be held liable for that, man. He should be held liable for trying to um, you know, get Julian Sines either kidnapped or killed. Well, also, I agree with that. And I'll tell you who else I think should be held liable for that. And it's going to sound weird. Great call, Tarif. Thanks for calling. Uh, this will sound weird, Rod. But do you know who I think should be held accountable for that? Is Sheldon Adelson. Now, it's weird because he's dead. Sheldon Adelson, the Las Vegas casino magnet, he paid for the, the spying on Julian Assange. But the reason I think he needs to be held accountable is he was the biggest donor to Trump and to the Republican Party. And I think that needs to be pointed out, that the biggest donor to Donald Trump was paying for spying on Julian Assange in the embassy. And anyone, I'm going to say this, anyone who, let me put it this way, Rod, I'll, I'll put it as a question to you. Do you think there was any way Trump was going to be able to do the right thing on Assange, given the fact 
that his biggest donor was paying for spying on him. Do you think any way? Um, very, very slim chances, Lee. But it, it just it just pours more wound in the salt when you have the people he pardoned, like the uh, disgraced mayor Quam, from Detroit, Kwame Kilpatrick, and uh, the rapper uh, Kodak Black. Like you know, you you you, you sidestep Edward Snowden and Julian Assange for these two people. You know, these these people were pardoned. Now, okay, now I'll uh, let's take a short break. When we come back, Andrew Arthur is here from the Center for Immigration Studies talking about a whole bunch of stuff. There's a lot of headlines that are now being buried. You'll, you'll see what we're talking about in a second when we talk to Andrew Arthur from CIS. Let's take a short break. This is The Backstory. Backstory and on the radio, 105.5 FM, AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. And you know, I was listening to a promo in the short break there. And Rod, did you hear they play a promo that my son Shane voices for Fault Lines? Did you hear that commercial? Right, yeah. I, and I like hearing my son's voice because it's the only time I hear it. But, uh, the show is Fault Lines with Manila Chan. It's with Chan and Jamal Thomas, right? It's not Stranahan and Thomas. Does it make sense? Yeah, that's correct. So, so it's an out-of-date promo, but I have a suggestion for engineers. If you want something fun to do, what you could do is, if you think about it, Stranahan and Chan aren't that far from each other. You've got the ands, right? So find a little bit where Shane says a word with ch, and then cut it together. So with fall lines with Thomas and then edit Chan in there. That's a fun project for you to do, engineers. Thank you. You're welcome. So. Getting to our guest now, he had to put up with that foolishness, but joining us now from the Center for Immigration Studies, the premier think tank dealing with issues of immigration from the only one dealing with it from a sane perspective in D.C., Andrew Arthur. How are you doing, Andrew? Hey, I'm doing finely. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. So, uh, we uh, our caller last half hour was talking about AMLO. So I want to talk about, t tell us what you thought of the meeting yesterday with AMLO, the head of Mexico, and Joe Biden, whether you noticed anything significant. And then what do you think of AMLO in general on the topic of immigration? You know, it's interestingly because, uh, and of course, whenever you're talking about uh, President Lope Lopez Obrador, 
Uh, and you're talking about immigration. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, he plays an interesting game. I think he plays an interesting role. When it came to, you know, President Trump, President Trump was, you know, more or less able to work with AMLO on the one hand or get AMLO to do on the other. Uh, what Trump wanted him to do as it related to allowing migrants to pass through Mexico, blocking off Mexico's southern border, sending the National Guard down, uh, you know, to the southern states and prevent people from coming through. I think there's a much different dynamic uh, as it relates to President Biden. Now, you know, a lot of the research that I've been doing lately suggests to me that uh, the Biden administration just doesn't have any interest whatsoever in stopping anybody who wants to come uh, to the United States from making it here, But um, which is actually different than open borders. But, um, yeah, I mean— the uh, you know we've seen incidents like the one that occurred at Del Rio, Texas, in September, when uh, anywhere between fifteen thousand thirty thousand migrants uh, poured into that tiny uh, town uh, on the Rio Grande. Those individuals had been uh, held in you know Tamaulipas, Mexico, down way down south, uh, and yet they had been all of a sudden released. They were allowed to you know head north. Uh, my colleague. Uh, Todd Benzman suggested that was, you know, coincided with the uh, Mexican Independence Day celebration, which, uh, for your American listeners, is not Cinco de Mayo, um, and that the, you know, they they all came over at once. And that was a rather odd thing to happen, uh, given the fact that the Mexicans had been keeping a uh, handle on it. But yeah, I mean, when you're, you know, when you're talking about, you know, the meetings yesterday with uh, administration officials. You know, you get a very different AMLO, a man who is a bit more sure of himself, who seems to have, uh, you know, a bit more um, of a handle on the situation, perhaps, you know, the um, the uh, then he is certainly not the same uh, scenario, the same dynamic that we saw with President Trump. Now, uh, I want to talk about a couple of stories. It seems to me that the media in this country does not want to cover stories involving illegal aliens who committed crime because they don't want to give, maybe it's a bias, uh, they, they don't want to stir up people who see a bias towards that. But do you, do you notice they're reticent to cover crime stories that involve illegal aliens and mention that those people are illegal aliens? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, this is, uh, you know, one of the biggest, uh, you know, problems when discussing, uh, you know, criminality, criminality by illegal aliens. A memorandum that was put out by DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas in September, uh, one that limited ICE enforcement in the United States, had a companion member called the Considerations Memo. And that Considerations Memo included, you know, what in my mind were some cherry-picked uh, statistics having to do with um, illegal alien criminality. Nobody really knows you know, how many uh, crimes are committed by illegal aliens in the United States? You know, you'll hear people say, oh, my God, there are millions of them. And then you'll hear people say, no, they hardly commit any crimes at all. The problem is that most crimes in the United States are prosecuted at the state and local level. And states and localities don't actually capture statistics on uh, on the immigration status of the individuals who they arrest. Now, Texas does. 
Um, but, you know, those Texas statistics, you know, have some issues when it comes to analysis because sometimes people aren't held long enough for Texas to actually determine what their immigration status is. So it's only in the exceptional case that pokes through where the status of uh, an individual uh, convicted of a particular charge with a particularly heinous crime, um, you know, actually is disclosed. Usually that's in the course of uh, you know, bond proceedings, uh, or, you know, it may be relevant to something in the case having to do with a familial relationship or something like that. But yeah, I mean, part of the problem is that there are no hard statistics and media that is frankly supportive of uh, the Biden immigration program is loath to ever talk about that. The Biden administration, for its part, is also loath to talk about uh, the immigration status of people, um, you know, who are arrested for those crimes. So, you know, it's a lack of transparency. There's a lot of, you know, President Biden came in stating that he would be the most transparent uh, president in history. And yet when it comes to immigration, you know, we see the administration clamp down so hard on, you know, key statistics. If it weren't for uh, the remain in Mexico case uh, that just made its way to the Supreme Court, we never would have known that the Biden administration had released one million, almost uh, 50,000, probably much more than that by now, aliens into the United States. That was uh, court-ordered disclosure. So, yeah, when it comes to alien criminality, I think that there is a tendency on the uh, part of the soy desant uh, elites to downplay alien criminality. And again, I, I never like to throw bombs on anything I don't know. But it's also, uh, you know, very significant in my mind that when you see, um, you know, various terrorism charges, things like that in the United States, DOJ press releases now refer to the person as an Ohio man or a Minnesota man rather than, you know, a, uh, you know, pick the nationality of person uh, where they are, you know, actually from. Now, so we'll look at a couple of those specific stories, but broadly, you know, in law enforcement, and particularly this came up in New York City, there's a theory called broken windows policing. And what they found was when the police take care of people with broken windows on their apartment buildings or whatever, when they don't handle that, they get more crime in the neighborhood in general. So is there any equivalent where they found that there's a people who violate the law in coming to the country? Have they found any type of broken windows, to use an analogy, effect on if you do a small crime? And I'm calling, you know, getting into the country illegally a small crime because it's not a violent crime. And that's debatable. It's a small crime. But that if you got into the country illegally, you're more likely to violate other criminal laws. Does that make sense, Andrew? Yeah, it does. And it goes back to, uh, you know, what we were you know, talking about just a moment ago. We can't really measure that criminality, so we have no way to know. But the one thing that we do know is that when you don't, uh, you know, prosecute people for removal, aliens for removal in the United States, that that encourages just more people to enter the United States illegally. Of course, that is the Biden administration's MO in both regards right now. They're not uh, 
you know, uh, they, uh, a memo that was issued by ICE's general counsel directs her attorneys to drop about 40% of uh, their cases, about 700,000 uh, at a minimum cases. So, you know, we, we definitely see uh, the Biden administration not enforcing the law in the interior, which is probably at least in part why we see so many people coming in illegally. Now, the one thing I will tell you, Lee, is, and this is generally a rule of thumb, purely anecdote, uh, and actually more theory even than anecdote, is that aliens who enter the United States illegally have paid good money to get here, so they want to stay as far under the radar from the police as possible. Any crimes that they commit are going to be the sort of crimes that you're not really going to um, you know, see other people committing. But I will give you one very uh, stark uh, difference, and that is in San Francisco. In San Francisco, former DA, recently former DA, uh, voted out of office not that uh, a couple weeks back, Chesa Bodine, refused to prosecute, uh, by and large, uh, individuals for selling drugs in the city of San Francisco. I mean, it generally happens down around UN Plaza and in the Tenderloin section in the middle of town. Um, and part of the reason why he wouldn't prosecute those uh, people was because there were a lot of Honduran nationals who were involved in the drug sales uh, in San Francisco. Boudin didn't want them to, you know, suffer uh, you know, from the consequences of the criminality with respect to their immigration status, so he just didn't prosecute anybody at all. Now, when you don't prosecute, you know, those people, you don't remove those people, you don't have the government focusing on them, it creates a pool of criminality in which other people, not just aliens, but other people, uh, are going to engage in crimes. The other thing that we see is that, you know, most aliens prey on immigrant communities. So when you hear uh, people like uh, Montgomery County uh, County Executive Mark Elrich, uh, you know, say that he's very interested in protecting the immigrant communities, and that's why he won't let his police have anything to do with ICE. He's really just, you know, adding to the misery and crime in those neighborhoods uh, because he's not allowing ICE to take the criminals who are preying on those people off of the streets. We definitely see this with respect to MS-13 as well. So, yeah, I mean, entering the United States illegally, you know, isn't necessarily a gateway crime to other criminality. But then I can't tell you for certain that it is or isn't because there just aren't any statistics out there on it. And, uh, you know, what we have is mostly inconclusive. Yeah, good, good, good point, Andrew. Now, let's get into specifics of a couple of these. There were a couple of people who were planning mass shooting. They were legal aliens in Virginia. Can you tell us about that story? Yeah, no. So um, <clears throat> the plan that they had was to commit, a, the, according to the police, the plan that they had was to commit a um, – mass shooting on the 4th of July, during 4th of July celebrations in the Dogwood Dell section of Richmond. Uh, and uh, reports indicate that they were two aliens unlawfully present in the United States, at least one of whom had been removed numerous times and re-entered illegally at least one more time than they'd been removed. Uh, and they were in the United States. Now, it's important to note, Lee, that uh, if you're a green card holder, you know, much like a citizen, you have a Second Amendment right. But if you're a non-immigrant here on like a tourist visa or a student visa, you're only allowed to even possess a firearm, even hold a firearm in very uh, 
you know, specific situation. So the question becomes how two aliens unlawfully present in the United States had the two long arms and pistol and you know, hundreds of rounds of ammunition that the police found when they searched uh, the residence of one of them. Uh, you know, that's a serious question. Um, and again, when I was an immigration judge, I would see any number of people who had gun crimes. And you know what they all told me? They always found them in a back alley in New York. Nobody ever purchased it from anybody else. Nobody ever, uh, you know, uh, actually, you know, committed a straw purchase or, you know, bought it illegally. It was always found in an alley. Now, I, you know, if you're looking for a gun, it sounds like back alleys in New York are the place to find them. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's a serious issue. It's a serious issue that an individual, at least one of them, you know, uh, was removed from the United States, illegally reentered, uh, and was able to, you know, live in Richmond, Virginia, the capital of Virginia, about 100 miles down the road from Washington, D.C. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's a serious issue. And, again, the motives, uh, you know, with respect to why they wanted to carry out this attack are unknown. Um, you know, the police really haven't said anything. I don't think they even know what the motive is. Uh, but, you know, to commit a mass shooting on, you know, our nation's holiday, biggest holiday, um, you know, is, you know, breathtaking. Now, there's another crime that was making the news due to Roe v. Wade being overturned by the Supreme Court. It was a horrible crime. It was about a 10-year-old girl who was raped and gotten pregnant. I believe in Ohio. And the story that was making the rounds was because Roe v. Wade was overturned that she had traveled to Ohio to get an abortion. Now, it was a badly reported story because it turned out the girl's mother had made the appointment two days before Roe v. Wade was overturned. So it was not Roe v. Wade is overturned, therefore she has to do this prior to Roe v. Wade being overturned, she'd already made the appointment. But then it came out on top of that, that the person who raped her was a 27-year-old illegal alien. So did you notice the coverage of that story? Is It's not good for the narrative, as they say. Yeah, no, the, uh, the accused in that case is one Gershon Fuentes, 27. And in the course, uh, as I mentioned, we were talking about bond hearings. Apparently, in the course of the bond proceeding for Mr. Fuentes uh, in court in Ohio, he's a uh, Columbus man in the beginning of the Columbus Dispatch story, um, you know, involved whether or not he was a flight risk. And, you know, you take into consideration the seriousness of the offense and flight risk whenever you uh, set a bond. So, you know, directly relevant to the flight risk issue, apparently, was the fact that he was here illegally. Uh, the judge ended up setting a $2 million bond. I was a little surprised that uh, the judge set a bond at all, given the nature of the case. But, yeah, no, you know, it, it is one of those uh, stories that really uh, has received a lot less attention than I would have assumed it did. And probably the reason that it did is it directly implicates Joe Biden's uh, immigration policies. In fact, I alluded earlier to Secretary Mayorkas's, uh, you know, uh, the memo uh, that he issued, uh, you know, directing uh, ICE agents to limit their immigration enforcement activities. 
One of the specific crimes, and this is shockingly, uh, that the Secretary of Homeland Security strongly dissuaded his uh, agents from investigating is domestic violence. Domestic violence is a huge problem. In fact, if you remember in the recent Senate gun bill, they closed what was called the boyfriend loophole. You can Google boyfriend loophole and read all about it. It was one of the main purposes of that bill. And that was to prevent individuals who had domestic violence charges or convictions uh, involving people that they didn't actually live with from getting access to firearms. Individuals who engage in domestic violence with a you know household member. Uh, were already barred from getting guns, but you know, this, you know these boyfriends who were you know not residing with the victims weren't. The Mayorkas uh, memo specifically tells ICE agents, you know, well, you know, you probably shouldn't go after uh, you know people who have engaged in domestic violence because that makes it less likely that the victims are going to come forward. Uh, you know, when domestic violence is an issue, respectfully, that is probably the most maternalistic, paternalistic statement, rather, that I've ever heard. And I've been involved in law enforcement for 30 years and heard quite a few. The idea that, you know, most domestic violence uh, victims are women, definitely not exclusively. Uh, but, you know, the likelihood of domestic violence involving a female is extremely high. The idea that they, you know, don't know their own hearts enough that when they call the police to prevent somebody from killing them, that they may be dissuaded from doing so because the person that they're actually calling the police on uh, may be removed from the United States as, you know, fallacious and offensive. So, yeah, I mean, it is, uh, you know, again, it's one of those things where, you know, the press has a narrative. They follow that narrative by and large and not across the board by and large. Um, and, you know, they don't like to talk about stuff that doesn't neatly fit that narrative. And the narrative doesn't work out well for people who may be illegal immigrants. Uh, you've been, Andrew, coming on the show for a long time and giving us your knowledge and wisdom, and I appreciate that. And I remember we talked about several months ago that the coming wave in illegal immigration, it was obvious that things were building to a crescendo and that it was going to start to peak around the summer. And I remember you and I had a discussion about the danger to illegal immigrants coming across the desert in July and August. And of course, around San Antonio last week, we had a horrible crime. 50 people dying in one of the most horrible ways I can imagine, locked in the back of a truck and literally overheating to death. That story, 50 people is a lot of people to die, a lot. And if if that was a mass shooting, that would be a top story for a long time. But it seemed to me like that story kind of vanished quickly because of the nature of it. And is there anything we can learn about that horrible death of 50 people, over 50 people in San Antonio? Does it say anything about our immigration system, Andrew? Yeah, no, it definitely does, Lee, because, you know, an important thing to keep in mind is those people almost definitely weren't in that truck when it crossed the border, when it went through a port of entry. Uh, you know, our, our uh, CBP officers at the ports of entry have, you know, uh, dogs that can sniff, uh, you know, humans. 
Uh, you know, they have giant x-ray machines. They have, you know, carte blanche to search anything that they want. Uh, and, you know, those officers, I've known many, you know, are very good at what they do. So probably what happened with respect to those 50 people, most of them were Mexicans, but there were a handful of Central Americans here, too, uh, is that they entered the United States illegally. They took advantage of that wide open border. They became part of the, you know, 700,000 plus gotaways who have entered the United States, um, you know, evading an overworked border patrol and got into this country. Now, once they get into the country, they have to, you know, go where they want to go in this country, which means, you know, getting north of I-10, getting north of, or uh, I-5, getting north of, uh, I'm sorry, I-2, getting north of uh, Border Patrol uh, and getting into the interior. So that truck in, in particular was parked in uh, southwestern San Antonio, just off the highway, just off where the Beltway hits the highway up there. And yeah, I mean, they got into the truck. Uh, you know, there was no air conditioning in the truck. And when police were dispatched to the scene uh, and opened the truck, they found that, you know, uh, many of the victims, you know, including the ones who were still alive but later succumbed, were too hot to touch. Can you imagine a human body being too hot to touch? I mean, that's just... But, you know, it, it's, you know, emblematic of, um, you know, the... Uh, natural consequences of Biden's open borders policy, uh, you know, it, because those are individuals who were lured here. In the law, we talk about um, attractive nuisances. You can't put a ladder up against your house and leave it there all night because some kid may climb it and fall down. Um, you know, that's an attractive nuisance. And in, uh, you know, this context, Biden's border policies are the attractive nuisance that draws people to the United States at their own peril. We know that every child, there were children on that truck, we know that every child that makes that trip to the southwest border suffers trauma. We had a report from 2019 that included various uh, psychological and medical professionals who made that determination. And yet, for some reason, you know, the vast swaths of uh, the American media seem to think that every person who enters the United States illegally either knew the risks, which isn't true, or alternatively was fleeing from some horrible situation that they were, you know, willing to, you know, risk uh, the dangers of that trip. Again, you don't. You, Smugglers lie. Uh, smugglers, you know, probably lie more than politicians and used car salesmen combined. They'll promise you the moon and the stars. They'll tell you it's going to be the greatest trip. You're going to be starting your new life. Once you're out in the desert, once you're on the highways, you're at their mercy. Uh, and smugglers are not good people. You know, uh, valedictorians and honor students aren't going into the smuggling business, but it's also lucrative. You know, it's worth billions of dollars a year. The money's good uh, for people who have a certain bent, and, you know, they are rapacious in every sense of the term. So, you know, it is that sort of hazard that the Biden administration invites. It's that sort of hazard that the Obama administration, to its credit, actually broadcast throughout Central America. Uh, but it's the kind of, uh, you know, danger that ever since Donald Trump became president, the press just stopped talking about it. Even National Geographic had an article, I think it was back in 2014, that detailed, you know, just the hells, not even horrors, the hells of the trip to the United States. You're never going to see articles like that now. Now, Andrew, in the last couple of minutes, uh, speaking of politicians, 
Congress is trying to pass some legislation to do with immigration, and it's attached to a military spending bill. Can you talk about that? Sure. The National Defense Authorization Act is one of those pieces of must-pass legislation uh, that Congress, you know, takes up every year. And because it's must-pass legislation and because it's a funding bill, it can pass on a simple party-line vote. So, uh, you know, various members of Congress have, you know, put forth proposals to uh, shorten the period of time that uh, aliens coming to the United States on business visas, employment visas have to spend outside the United States before they come here. In some instances, you know, people have to wait, you know, tens of years uh, to come to the United States on those. Um, and, you know, other provisions that, uh, you know, deal with uh, other aspects of it, including the status of dreamers, you know, uh, aliens who are brought to the United States at the young age who are still here. Um, so, you know, a couple things about that, uh, you know, one, uh, Dem or Republicans in Congress are probably going to, uh, you know, fight uh, those amendments. And two, uh, amendments like that really hold up the passage of bills. And Democrats who control both houses of Congress and the presidency don't want to be blamed for the fact that our troops in the field or our you know, troops at bases, you know, military families don't actually have what they need. So, you know, again, this isn't a novel idea. We've seen, you know, things like this were put forward uh, in the past, including by then-Senator Kamala Harris of California. Uh, you know, sometimes they stick, but more likely than not, more often than not, they don't. As, and we're about out of time. Andrew Arthur, thanks so much. And the website for the Center for Immigration Studies is cis.org, correct? And thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Great appearance as always, Andrew. We love having you on. And you're knowledgeable and you do care about the issue, too. Thanks so much to Mark Sloboda for joining us in the first hour. And thanks to our callers, Al Killer and Tarif. And thanks to Rod, our producer, for another great show. And the engineers work on that promo I told you. Okay, don't. We'll talk to you tomorrow on The Backstory.